0: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Film Score Podcast. Today is actually my first episode with guests in two different locations. The primary interview is with Nicole Russin McFarlane, who's a composer for film and for radio plays. And joining her is Christopher Norris, who's a voice actor that has done a few dozen radio plays with Nicole. I imagine it's a very prolific working relationship that they've created for themselves. So, of course, we talk about their radio plays and their creative process, as well as diving into a lot of other deeper topics, such as accessibility and discrimination in film broadly, as well as film music, and their work in creating their own mini-studio with some of their other friends and colleagues. Along the way, we talk about the program from Sony called AWOL, the set of virtual instruments from UGM that are focused on low price point and accessibility, and Nicole talks about the Stan Winston School, which kind of involves all aspects of effects for film. I've actually been sick for the last several days, so you might hear it in my voice in this opening, but fortunately I was not sick while we recorded. But this has pushed back my recording of my January through March recap. So I'll probably get that done sometime this month. I know you're all waiting at the edge of your seats for that, but I assure you it's coming. Now you can find out more about Nicole and Chris on their various social media. And of course, you can do the same for me. I also finally gave in and made a Facebook page for the film score. So if that's your scene, be sure to check that out as well. But on to the important part, the interview. I'll sit back,
1: open your ears, and I hope you enjoy. Nicole, Chris, I'm so glad you two could join me today. How have you
2: both been? It's been going good. Nicole and I finished up the the last batch of plays and been resting up, ready for the next batch. When we've got them, uh, when we've got them all planned out, it's been good.
3: Great. I ate really good beans this morning. <laughs> refried beans. And I, I'm just like, um, one thing that I've learned a lot about music is that most people who are rockers, rappers, composers, and that kind of thing, I used to think I was weird about meeting celebrity chefs and, and getting into cooking. And I found out everybody is obsessed with cooking because cooking is a blend of science meeting art. And that's what music is. And then I suddenly find out all these people are obsessed with cooking and bragging about uh, corn on the cob. That's my cat in the background. She's another guest. Yeah. And uh, you know, like any type of food or they go to restaurants and get obsessed with meeting celebrity chefs like I do. So today I had like the most awesome refried beans and it was so exciting.
1: Nice. So Chris, you did mention that you're waiting for the next batch of radio plays to get planned before you two can get rolling on them. I know that that's a, like a very prolific collaboration to have done. I mean, how many radio plays have you two worked on so far?
2: I believe the count is 22.
3: <laughs> We're going to go for 50 between us and then like other people want to participate in the radio plays. Yeah. So can I just, if, if um, I want to explain that. So what happened is I'm in a program called AWOL, which is under the Sony Music branch. It's based out of London. You start kind of just at a basic level, they watch you. If you do really well, you're supposed to put out lots and lots of work. That's one of the reasons for these radio Mm. plays. And Donald Glover and Phineas, who just won an Academy Award for No Time to Die, those are the most prolific examples of excelling within the AWOL program. They help you if they think that you're ready. So um, obviously I'm interested in Film scoring and things like that, but also kind of secretly or not so secretly, I would love to put out an album like The Weeknd, you know, his collaboration with Daft Punk, but with slightly more rock and roll, like that kind of thing. So I, I love Pharrell Williams, who ironically, I'm going to talk about U Jam today. Um, and I love different people who balance that. Once you reach a point where you are ready to move on from just kind of self releasing your own music, regardless of genre, they love people who are extraordinarily passionate, not just love it, but they live for making music and they love people who want to bridge between film and music. So please like join the program. And that's I'm so happy to tell anyone about it because I love it.
1: Okay, perfect. How did you, we'll circle back to the radio plays in a minute, but I mean, how did you get involved in the program, find out about it and what has or how has it helped you so far?
3: well, what it is, is they encourage you to be really productive. So one of the first things they do in the job interview process is they ask you how many albums you plan on releasing. And they ask you different questions. But um, I found out about it through the web. I mean, I was just reading about Donald Glover. And then I was reading about different people who had come from this spectacular program. Then I went on their social media. And I'm really big on, like I've told you before, like diversity and that kind of thing. And I saw that not only within diversity, like, yes, we have black people, women, and that sort of thing, queer people, but they're not like the token queer person. They promote women who all look different, queer people who all look different, men of every age, you know, it's so diverse within the diversity. So then after that, I applied to it, waited, and shortly after my 34th birthday, I got accepted into it. Because for the longest time, I've been telling people for at least two and a half decades, like, I want to go between film and music I want to be a film score composer who takes breaks from that to direct movies and then occasionally releases you know like this type of blend of hip-hop with rock if I can never do that and then people were like yeah and you know they were not really taking me seriously and then here I found this beautiful program where they want people like that but also you know lots of The things we read in the media discourage people because they make it so youth-oriented. Like, you, if you haven't done anything by age 23, you're just a goner. And that's completely false. I mean, it took, like I said, right after I turned 34, I'm going to turn 35 in June, and I don't see why I cannot keep going because I I just think you're never too old. And the longer you take to get out of your rut, the longer it will be to achieve things.
1: Well, I mean, that's a good point because a lot of young composer programs for instance or for film or for writing fiction you'll see it like early mid-20s as as, like you're young you're fledgling composer but I mean you see Mm -hmm. so many people in the arts that didn't even start till they're in their 40s like Raymond Chandler for instance the the noir detective novelist like Mm -hmm. super famous wrote his first book in his mid-40s
3: See, I started because I had, like I said, I had done modeling and stuff to break into it, and that's another cool story I want to share in a minute. I started trying when I was young, and and you know I had a director who I met online. He's a studio director. End up having a guy rewrite the score that I gave him when I was 20. That was super uncool. But in my defense, mm-hmm. movie flopped. Karma. <laughs> and then the second part is I remember when I was doing modeling, and some person said, like, "Hey, can you sing pop music?" I was like, "Yeah, sure, good enough" or whatever okay, do you want to impersonate Lady Gaga? We can promote you to all the record companies. I said, like, this is very bad. It sounds seedy. And I don't want to be known as this and ripping off Gaga and whatever. So I did not agree to it. I'm sure they found someone who did. And they had different incidents of those types of things. And one thing I will say, if you don't, I I wrote to Timbaland, who's known as Tim Mosley, um, when I was 18, and um i got in touch with him and and that's not to say i'm his best friend <laughs> that would be cool but i'm not i just wrote to him and i told him this super whiny 18 year old girl stuff. Like I am so depressed. I hate school. I'm studying stuff that I'm never going to use. Blah, you know, and I don't know what I'm doing because I produce beats, but not everyone is standing out because I wish I could stand out. I'm as good as these other guys and I love the Neptunes and I love you and, and you work with Justin Timberlake. I love Justin Timberlake and you know, all kinds of stuff. These are the people I see myself wanting to be exactly like, and what he wrote back many months later after apologizing for not getting to it sooner. And he wrote me this long note and it said, and I'm just rephrasing this because he was way more eloquent. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm a Midwestern girl. Okay. Um, I speak Midwestern. Um he he was very eloquently phrasing that this point. It doesn't matter what you start off in, as long as people know who you are, like just get your name out there and transition into music because that's going to be a lot easier. And you know, sometimes life throws things at you. It was like it this beautiful. But I don't have it anymore. It was it was really nice. And the other thing was enter every contest, but only if they are high profile ones, which I did. And I entered an Elle magazine contest. I won, and I used it to get my first modeling agency. So mm-hmm. that is so cool. And Mr. Mosley, who were if you are listening to this, I, I don't know if you like film scoring <laughs> and listen to film score podcasts, but if you are, thank you. Really appreciated that, especially. Most moguls and, and rap icons are not going to write back to an, a very whiny 18-year-old girl. So that was very sweet.
1: Oh, that is that is super nice. I mean, and, and yeah, you're right. It, it's so uncommon for that to happen, but it's such a special moment.
3: And I wonder if he doesn't even remember. Like, maybe he writes back to lots of kids. You know, like, maybe I'm the 100th kid in a row he wrote to that day.
1: Even if it was? Like, that's just that many kids that hopefully, or I mean, certainly if, if he's writing that well, that he's inspiring or has inspired so good for him
3: he is yeah so is
1: that what kind of pushed you to then step into modeling as a stepping stone for work in film and music
3: well it didn't work out but I kind of hoped it would work that way like people were are more aware of who I am as a result of that for being a, like a a failed model I think I've gotten a lot of promotion out of that I mostly just modeled stuff like hair things and it's also uh and makeup It's a really good starting point too, because I think, in the sensationalism of, I, I guess, like uh, clickbait media and all that in this culture, people are going to be like the flute player, oh girl, who's been a model. And they suddenly assume you're really good looking or better looking than you are, or more talented than you are, or whatever it may be. It's funny. Like I always tell people, if I introduce you as former model, they're going to be like, oh my gosh, does he look really handsome in person? Whereas if I say this guy's a waiter, mm. it, it doesn't matter if you look like Chris Hemsworth and you're a waiter or a car salesman, they will be like, he's cute, but you know, he's a car salesman, <laughs> movie star, model. You're suddenly a better human being and more attractive, and it's a really powerful marketing thing.
1: Interesting. Was like, were you cognizant of that upfront, or is that a realization in hindsight?
3: No, hindsight.
1: I gotcha. I gotcha. So then, how did the the transition happen? That how did how did you realize at some point you were, and I'll use your words, a failed model to then to then move forward.
3: Well, I always was trying to break into filmmaking and I just didn't have a means to do it. So I just started drawing stuff because I wanted to get things that count rhyme DB and my heroes, my personal heroes, not for their talent, for who they are as businessmen and just kind of people are Peter Jackson, James Cameron, and Hans Zimmer. So um, i always wanted to blend, like what if Peter Jackson were most of the time Hans Zimmer and then he ended up, expanding into film and he took breaks to direct these incredible movies and they're all directors who my favorite guys but also people who beyond them are directors who value quality over quantity and direct science fiction blockbusters those kinds of things the closest thing to that material is animation and also i wanted people there's a friend of mine who is a big special effects guy and he's so cool and one of the things he told me was you have to learn how to do this because I could do this and and just make you stuff. I can make you dolls or whatever it is. And his name is David Monsingo. He's so cool. So talented. He makes, I mean, you, you look at every great movie. He's been a part of it from the Jurassic Park series to things like The Shape of Water. I, um, he, his workplace was involved in that. Um, up to some of the, I believe some of the new Star Wars shows that are out on Disney Plus. I'd have to double check the last one, but I think he, he also did a Tom Hanks movie mm. on Apple Plus. So you can see this is a guy who like you want to take advice from, and I want to credit him, like you need to learn how to do these things. Of course, more than one person has told me that, but David is the one who's told me the most properly. And if you don't do learn how to do these things, then people are going to take advantage of you, basically. That's what happens. Um, that's my wording, I think. And also, I think that um, you come off kind of like a fraud. So I wanted to be as involved as I could with filmmaking. And animation was the only way to do that. Of course, like hand sketching stuff or, you know, like inputting into the computer and learning about developing my own method of 2D animation. That's kind of weird. It's imperfect, but it works for me. You need lots of IMDb credits. To be given a bunch of money to score a movie or whatever it may be. So, the plan that I shared with people on Twitter is I want to do like all my indie stuff, which now we're entering into film festivals, fundraise for my first ever film with a budget at all, which would be a Loch Ness Monster movie, an animated film. And then afterwards, somehow magically jump from that to a giant budget movie where I go rent space for Mr. Peter Jackson in New Zealand and make a Big Bad Wolf movie, which is basically like fairy tale inspired um, CGI motion capture animation in the style of The Adventures of Tintin. Hopefully all goes well We'll and rip space and make The Time Machine. The Time Machine is a lifelong pass. uh, Can I say that? A lifelong passion of mine. You know, I was 14 years old when I wrote the first treatment for The Time Machine. And then I went to see the movie, the 2002 version. I said, I can do this, but better. Sorry, Mr. Spielberg, I love you, but I can do this better. And it's like written from a young girl's heart. But you know, like a young lady's heart that I don't think you can write again. It's a thing that you can only write as a young person and improve on as an adult. I don't think I could write it now today. Why is that? Well, because I think you have to dream big. And I also, at the time, when I wrote The Time Machine, I had already seen the first Lord of the Rings. And this follow-up, The Two Towers, had just come out in theaters. And I was watching this saying, like, okay, this guy and his girlfriend from New Zealand can go and make the biggest movies in the world. So can I. And I had this kind of delusion to me as a young lady that I don't think you can have as you approach your 35th birthday. And I think that's so necessary because if you start thinking about things like, oh no, I can't, I can't, I can't, then you know you don't write these dream movies. And I remember this movie so well in my heart. I really want to do this. I hope people also, in case they're like, what the heck, this is Midwestern culture, okay? It's like, we're cheesy, we're so enthusiastic. You look at people throughout our history, whether it's building cars or inventions or things like that where people who see no reason as to why you cannot do these things so that's kind of like in case people are used to the la mentality of people who've settled in there i think one of the best things about me always hiding in the midwest is that i had this enthusiasm that i wouldn't have if i stayed in la you know
1: it is an interesting point too about how your your mentality changes from being a kid or being young to yeah. an adult I mean you you develop a cynicism and you have more self-doubt become more self-conscious so that's that, that is an interesting point
3: Yeah I mean like even Chris we I was asking him yesterday about some stuff like hey chris i hope you're (laughs) i don't want to ignore you but you know like um i was asking chris like how old are you exactly because i never really knew i had a guess and it's because you can never be too old to start changing your life and the sooner you change your life the easier it is and i cannot stress that enough i hope chris has something cool to say though what do you (laughs) want to say chris because i feel like i i I don't know i'm i'm like super hyper so i just uh
2: to be honest, it was quite interesting hearing you um, you you go through your background. So
3: yeah,
2: I, my background is decidedly less exciting. <laughs> 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 my journey into acting, well, I started during the pandemic, during the first lockdown, so back in 2020. And one thing I've always wanted to do since I was uh, since I was in my late teens, and part of what I went to university for was to get into video games. So I'm doing all that jazz. I realised quite early on that. I didn't quite have the knack for programming and, and drawing and, and artwork and so forth. Uh, but I was talking with a friend um, and they said, why well, don't you try like, the, the voices stuff? Because it's something you're good at and you're quite funny with it. So I thought, why not? Yeah, kind of etched out a, a small niche for myself to start with. And then um, I met Nicole and things have just kind of exploded. It's been fun the entire way.
3: And I bet you never thought someday you'd be like, hey, some girl's going to meet me and she's going to invite me to go on this super cool AWOL program and release radio plays.
2: <laughs> I, I genuinely didn't. It was a t- <laughs> it, it was total surprise. Like, Chris, right, so we're going to do this. We're going to do that. I was like, hey. <laughs> <laughs> but no, it's, it's been brilliant. In, in some of the conversations with uh, with Nicole, because we, we, we do chat quite often outside of, um, outside of projects as well.
1: How did you two then come into contact and begin this partnership? Twitter. Really?
3: hmm I slide in DMs. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> A lot of people do complain about like, the toxicity of social media. And I'm sure that both of you have seen that. But I mean, have you also, I mean, it sounds like you've seen it, the constructive collaborative side of it too.
2: Oh, for sure. Yeah. You do see a lot of toxicity and, and some bad elements that creep through, but it's it's normally, like you say, it's, it's quite a collaborative and uplifting environment, at least in the, the acting the acting sphere. I, I can't really speak to any of the others.
3: Actually, I've, you know, I, the other day, and Chris is aware of this, I had, a, and I won't name the publication, but I had several issues and I, and the U-Jam team is aware of this. Hi, u Um, You know, I had multiple libel suits or whatever you want to call them, like Battles for since 2008 with different publications. The final publication was refusing to remove several articles. One of them was um, an article where they took a picture of a girl's adult video and a still from, I forgot who she is. I don't know, like some model or, or pageant girl turned model or whatever, insinuating that was me. It looked nothing like me. It was a very tall, blonde girl with an orange Trump tan. But um They were insinuating that was me and they were refusing to take that down. The other one was a horrible rumor that actually um, the man who uh, gave me drugs and sexually assaulted me credited and that had been in several tabloids in this publication. And they were refusing to also take that down. It was completely untrue, but I kept saying this is endangering me. So thanks to the power of Twitter, a mix of people, so like friendly voiceover actors who shared it publicly and privately, all the way to a lovely man who is a major person in the film world Uh, and and other people who shared it privately and I I can't mention them. It came falling down and after 14 years of me fighting with these people, that came in in days, came down because Twitter is that important to people so never ever delete your Twitter because I always tell people if you are stranded somewhere on the side of a road you're in danger or whatever it may be, people on Twitter will help you where you kind of least expect it
1: that's wild. look that's the side of things that no one mentions but it also does dovetail into some recent articles that have been floating around about some of the at times horrible conditions in the film industry broadly and in film music where there are a lot of allegations of sexual discrimination harassment assault Mm -hmm. or just like broader discriminatory issues too we see it where I, f- I forget the the survey showing that i think female composers made up like two percent of the blockbusters that released last year there are all those aspects that are in one sense absolutely unbelievable that like they still persist and are so systemic and yet unfortunately very believable as well
2: it's definitely fair to say that there is a, a a disparity in the ratio between male to female talents within composing and acting and every level as far as i'm aware but then it's an opportunity for people like myself and nicole to really bring new life and new ideas and new uh, approaches to all of this so you, we can really changed things to how we the industry should be as as opposed to this
3: yeah well one thing i've told you personally that the host with the most um is that there i've met different people who refer to plus size successful male celebrities in the film world as things like and this is the quote I'm just repeating, the fat guy who won the Oscar, that was one, and then it was a a very nice person, and um, there was a plus-size director, I mean, he told me, like, straight up, and I was explaining some problems to him about way too many things to kind of bring down to a, a few minutes um he said like i have never been openly told this before and it was i always wondered if i looked different if i would have been given chances if i would have been with a cool guy at the party and i would have been you, you know given career success much earlier in my life it makes you want to cry um because it's something that happens with you know gay men who don't look like a stereotype of gay or they're, they're like i mentioned plus size or whatever it is it's not just the very black and white issue of quote-unquote black and white it's or like that's a white guy He's going to excel it doesn't quite work that way if you were a white guy you but you don't fit a mold you won't work if you're a woman who's white you won't work if you don't fit a mold or you know you're a black person but you know even though they're looking for a black person to fit the question of let's hire a black person for this part or behind the camera or as a composer if you don't look a certain way, then you're not good enough either. It's so sad. And that's one reason I I mentioned AWOL at the beginning, because AWOL doesn't do that. AWOL picks people who look so different, and they just care about your ambition. And that's beautiful.
1: Yeah, that's great. And It is a frustrating, even concept that the talent or being good in the role isn't sometimes as important as very superficial things, like you're saying of not looking the right way. I don't know. It, it blows my mind that that's still going on in a very heavy way.
3: Well, you know, one thing, I, a thing that people do is if they want to gatekeep you is they will refuse to service you. And that may be in special effects, uh, whatever it may be. And that's quite obviously a very mean thing to do, but also effective. Because if you were, like I said, a plus size man, and these are real examples, and you go to an effects company, they do not want to service you then you're going to be stopped from making your movie as quickly as you would like, or at least your pitch for the film. And also a publicity team. If a, a publicist makes up a story, like I've told you, um, and I'm, I have the dignity of not naming that person, yet he can go around gossiping about me with things I never did. And you know, just because you don't want to service me because you think I'm not a real composer, that is disgusting. I've also, um, and I don't mind saying this, as long as they don't name their companies, I've been referred to people who have animation companies and they do not want to service my friends and myself because they don't want us to succeed. In that case, I would think it's very classist that only people who have certain degrees and certain backgrounds, and that. but in my case, we're just a bunch of people who are not from the film world originally or film parents and that kind of thing. And we want to get into filmmaking and making these beautiful blockbusters. It's starting with animation to slide into blockbusters and the fact that people don't want to service us just because of that and then they we we have these talks like, okay, well, you say that's going to be over a million dollars and in your currency. what is it actually going to cost? And then they refuse to quote us and say, well, I guess I changed my mind. I can't service you or or whatever it is. It's really disgusting.
1: Jeez, that it's so is it safe to say then that one of the reasons why? you two and your broader group formed and coalesced was as a response of dealing with third parties and instead wanting to just do everything together?
3: Uh, yeah, so the, when we have situations like having to do storyboarding, I don't want to do storyboarding in all of my future films now, but I know the hard work involved because I think that would distract me from other things that I could do well. and And that's just an example of many things um and I obviously would rather have the animation and all of that or in the future CGI loaned out to other people because you know Mr. Jackson and directors I love are not doing their own CGI um, okay. although certainly um you look at the directors I love and they have helped found studios that do magnificent G- CGI um it's just they're not sitting down doing everything because you will want to rip out your hair and I've had moments where like I animated my own 90-minute-plus feature film for my first movie, Esther in Wonderland, giving it a very dramatic name, Appear Against Odyssey, The Homework's Revenge, Esther in Wonderland, because I felt like that's the only time in my life I can have a big, big name. But And I just felt like, how am I going to finish this movie? Um, I animated some other work, and I felt the same way because I feel like that's a skill I had to acquire, whereas other skills come to me naturally. But in the good spirit of things, now we're very well-prepared to go say, hey, we know how to do this stuff. We're not faking it.
1: How big is that learning curve? Because obviously you don't just like wake up one day and go, all right, I'm going to make an animated film and then do it.
3: It's bad. And, you know, one of the things I didn't know... Is like people kept pushing me the Stan Winston School. And I kept saying like, uh, I don't really know because it's like, what if this is gimmicky? And actually I think one of the best, I hope someday to say like I won an Oscar because I enrolled in Stan Winston School special effects courses um, because you, you get very hands-on you can practice making puppets and different things. And it trains your mind to be positioned into thinking what special effects are about. And several different directors recommended it to me. Mr. Monsingo teaches some courses there that are pre recorded and they're awesome. Um, and a whole bunch of people from his workplace. There are all these people who basically, if you want to crash course into knowing what is involved in the day to day operations of being someone like my favorite directors. They actually have people from their movies who come yeah. along with Mr. Monsingo who go and teach people what things are behind Avatar, Lord of the Rings, all of these movies and making masks, puppets, um, the combination of acting with CGI and, and practical effects, like super cool things, how to direct people if they're in monster suits. So all of this is going to be useful to me. I never wanted to go to film school apart from the reason being like, oh, maybe I could get hired or whatever because I prefer music. But I, I just... Think that's the only way. You have to break your mind to learn to think artistically, or you will never ever learn how to draw. And I also there's a free program called Sketchbook, and you can practice with it on your iPad. Mess up a million times, and there are so many things like some programs are thirty dollars. I don't use Adobe for the reason being I don't want to be on a monthly subscription. But you know there are cheap options for people. Pixelmator Pro that is an excellent piece of software. I use all the time for animation and it's just so good. It's cheap. You can even make mock green screens on it. You can take things out by highlighting all the green. You can do super cool things with it.
1: And that kind of transitions us into talking about U-Jam as well, which is has some similarities, but from the music composing point of view of trying to find alternatives that are affordable, that can let you produce something that's maybe not the same as having a 100-piece orchestra, but will at least like still sound good
3: well actually it kind of is though it's kind of okay so I'm really really super excited because I get excited about all kinds of software um and I'm, I'm so happy that I was asked to test things out in UGM and now I'm kind of glued to it basically what it is it's a company founded by a gentleman called Peter Gorgas who's a super duper awesome synth expert he is so awesome that he wrote a whole book about synths He happens to be a friend of a co-founder, a gentleman named Mr. Hans Zimmer. And the other co-founder is Pharrell Williams. So these are all gentlemen. What they have in common is that they believe, and I'm going to see if I can find a quote from him. Oh, yes, I found it here. Okay. From Mr. Gorgas. I realized that although I struggled in music theory or sight reading, playing music by ear, inventing it, and programming and understanding synths came to me effortlessly. So what that's saying is that you don't by passion in a classroom you learn by doing and by having a love for this if you lack passion or you know just testing things out you're not going to find what you're looking for in life and back to that point so first off that's what this is about you don't need music experience to work with music software however if you have it it's totally fine now the second part of it is it's about quality products that bring things down to an affordable level. If you look at it, plugins, they're often $800, $900 for a pack or whatever it is. Everything at UJam is really cheap compared to that. And if you take a 40% off discount for students and teachers, there's that, and there's even a 50% off for people who are disabled and belong to the Able Artist Foundation. A pair of ugg boots you can buy your granny costs more with tax than UJam strengths and that is mind-blowing when you consider that UGM Strings is produced by Boris Salchow, but it's um, actually starting with um, Mr. Simmer's personal strings collection. So that's one of the first questions they have, like, can I layer strings? Can I layer strings? And yes, you can layer strings. You can layer it with by itself, running against itself. You can layer strings with stuff that comes with GarageBand and Logic or, or things you may have bought from another company. And it sounds impeccable because it's actually... Recordings taken from a very large orchestra of just strings players, low strings, high strings, and you can manipulate them any way you want for any genre of music. So um I have samples out there like The Raven by Edgar Allan Poe. That's made only using ujam Jam strings. But then we have things like synth by and, and Peter Gorges makes all the synth products. Um I have nothing but good things to say. And, and I will say that this is stuff. I wish I had when I was really young, like when I was 13, 14, because I would be playing all day with this. And one of the things that I remember my parents saying when I was really young was like, we're not going to spend a bunch of money on your music stuff because we already bought you a flute. And, you know, we don't really know how serious you are about a music career because you were 12 and 13 and whatever. And I think that were I alive today as a 13 year old or 12 year old, I would be really working that student discount because it just excites me you know like i i feel like when i play with this i'm my inner younger self and i i go out of my way to make most of my radio plays with these items for the sake being to young people telling them that you don't have to spend a bunch of money to create amazing stuff whereas you know i made a custom kit i used a bunch of kids clips of them playing violin and different things. And I have my own set of custom instruments, technically, if my own custom plugins, if you will, samples, but they didn't come out as big and bold because I didn't have the financial resources to make them. So I was searching online forever and ever and ever. And then I found like rival companies, you know, like Spitfire Audio is good and they have some neat things there, but it's not like, oh, I don't know, I don't want all the Spitfire Audio because of the price point. I'm just going to be honest. Like I I got some of the cheaper stuff and, I, and it sounds good, but I'm like a, for a flute player, I'm oddly obsessed with strings and very, very picky. And then there's this other company where I felt the strings sounded so fake. And then there's one that's like, the sounds just like I did. So what's the big fuss? And I'm not going to spend 500 plus or $900 on, on this other one to have stuff that sounds like what I have. So then I found strings. And then by coincidence, I didn't approach them at all. And I was asked, like, do you want to try anything from its stores? Like, oh, (laughs) yes, I want to try strings, you know, (laughs) like, like, you know, my inner self was like, yes, I want to try strings and layer it. And I tried it. And it's like, this sounds so cool. And it's just kind of like what I was looking for. It's, It's exciting. I don't know how Chris, as an outsider to all of this who does not know about music composition, how do you think strings and all these things sound? Like, I know you like them, but you phrase it better. You're British. You know what you're doing.
2: Well, there's your first mistake, assuming I know what I'm talking about. (laughs) Oh! (laughs) Just hearing you talk about it and and what you've told me in the past about it, I am actually intrigued about trying it and and having something that accessible to someone like me. That actually, funnily enough, plays on an idea that I've been thinking of because you mentioned in the future, your plans that you jam and so forth is is something that I've been thinking of more recently as plans for the future is like to set up a almost like a platform for anyone looking to get into like acting and composing with tools and materials that people don't have at the outset so for example you'd get teachers or tutors saying like okay so this is social media you obviously know what that is here's how to best conduct yourself on social media to maintain a good reputation here's how you need to conduct yourself with directors and casting agents and so forth going back uh, and touching on the the twitter experience you do see tweets of people just behaving in not the right way to build a like a long career because word spreads really quickly obviously it's social media but then with things like ujam as well and say for example having a guest speaker like nicole coming in saying here's how you use ujam if you're looking to get to composing, Here's what you can do, and just give people like a, almost like a a springboard into the acting and, and music sphere. Because I think anyone can act and compose, irrespective of background. Because it's very much a bit of an old boys club at the moment. There's a lot of old people and old old money, and and I think if more people were given that opportunity to to get into it and just have tools that they can use from the outset, rather than make all these silly mistakes that people can do at the beginning and then I think, um, uh, I think I'll think i reach the end of this sentence at some point, but I forgot <laughs> where I was going.
3: <laughs> well, you know that's one reason, and I always tell everyone, I love Peter Jackson, James Cameron and Hans Zimmer. James Cameron was a truck driver, you know, Hans Zimmer, just a regular guy from Germany who did not have a humongous musical background. Peter Jackson, my favorite movie director in the entire universe was a very exploited, underpaid photojournalist mm-hmm. at the newspaper. None of these people were old money. None of them were people who said, "Oh, I have to go get a master's degree, you know, there's no guarantee in this universe that if you have a PhD or a master's degree or a simple bachelor's in music or or acting or whatever that you are going to excel and become an Oscar winner." No. I mean, that's just ridiculous. I I can tell you about a bunch of people who have very famous university degrees who are serving coffee in West Hollywood, okay? for 10 years plus or or waiting tables i mean and and they're not untalented but there's no guarantee that oh yes i'm gonna go to harvard or oxford or wherever it may be that you are going to excel no i have a university degree that's like i mentioned at the beginning writing to that gentleman mr mosley that's one of the things i was telling him my gut feeling says i'm never going to use this it's going to be a waste of time and i was right And I I feel bad saying that, but you know, for most things, you don't really need a degree. It's a myth sold to people that you have to be a university graduate where you were worthless as a person. And that's kind of why I like you, Jam. I like Richard Simmons. You know, I, I, I like so many people and I'm fans of their business sense because I feel that it holds people back and you could be spending those years of your youth. I feel worse. I graduated early. When I was 19, going on 20, because I worked so hard, like had no summers off and didn't have a life. And anytime I had a life was only because I basically metaphorically ran away to attend red carpets and to just kind of go to stuff I wasn't invited to, whether it's like BMAs or, you know, like a gathering in Manhattan or whatever like whatever. I just feel wronged by the education myth. And I don't know, I can go on all day, but yeah.
1: That does, like, speak to just, like, how brutally difficult it is to truly break into the film industry broadly. Whether it's acting, composing, like, directing. I mean, you can do a lot of things. You can do a lot of shorts, very indie films. And then I just see and talk to so many people, like, on the film composing side of it where you're then spending years and years and years just working your ass off trying to get that next break. But, like, there are so many other people trying to do that, too.
3: I don't want to come off like you know like like i'm a cynic but you know one thing i hope people gain from this is the perspective that chris and i bring today is the perspective of what if people don't help and what if you have to reach for your goals yourself because all of your life people are saying you're too whatever it is in the fill in the blank with something negative or you're not enough of something so very few people like I, i mentioned um you see success stories of people where they've been helped who are wonderful men and some women because we don't have a lot of women in film, film music, whatever it is. But what about if nobody helps you? Okay, that's just the reality for most people. That's why most people are serving coffee at Starbucks, because people are not helping them. You just have to create opportunities for yourself. And one of those things is that nobody can stop you from releasing as much music as possible. That's one of the most beautiful things I've learned from this whole AWOL experience is that yeah, go ahead, Nicole, you can release 100 albums of radio plays. Okay. And then people are like, oh, really? But actually, that was one of the first things I, t- I told AWOL. As I said, I will get you anywhere between 50 to 100 albums because I will work and I will not sleep and do whatever it takes. I think um, if you have a work ethic, sometimes that's the only way to outsmart all of this mess of the whole system of way the way things work.
1: On that point, and this will kind of bring us full circle before we do end up wrapping up, is on the radio plays, you know, I typically only have composers on here. So, I, you know, I, I never have the chance to have other people involved in the production. So I'm curious because it seems like the plays are really just you and Chris working on them.
3: Yeah. So what we do, I work on with a solo actor or actress. And I give the person kind of a time to shine reading, like, say, Samantha with The Raven, Samantha B. Uh, she's also doing some other ones for me. Um, who And I just kind of give one person a time to basically, you get to know them as an actor, actress. But also, I really want people to be hired. And I feel like I do my part so well because, you know, with Miss Shiguno's Chickens, which is an indie animated feature film we have that's kind of going around film festivals right now so far two of the people in the movie have been hired by i mean not hired but taken by talent agents because of being in *Miss Jaguna's chickens okay that's just a little indie project we spent no money on and that's incredible because that means that some of the things you can do to help people don't cost any money so that's one of the things i do is i write parts for people who have an interest in appearing in my films and i go out of my way to include people Esther and Wonderland had over 200 actors, things like that. And and just for these little indie things, and like on on the radio plays, I want everyone to get as many IMDb credits as they can out of them, that a a casting person or a film director can land on these things and say, hey, you know, Chris is so good at this, or Samantha or anyone, because it's just, it's just so hard. It's a rat race to be cast. And they don't hire people unless you have enough proof that you can act. You're responsible and you're very good at what you do.
1: And so what's the, the working relationship like? Like, just just pick one of the recent ones that you and Chris have done. How does that process go, both from writing, from doing the music, to having Chris coming in, doing the voice acting? I mean, how do those, and for, obviously that's a lot, but like from just a very high level perspective, like how does that process work?
3: Okay. Well, in a standard thing with film scoring, if I score my own movies, and hopefully my future movies that I make, I score them when I'm done. Or at least I, I have an idea and then I do half and half. With these, Chris or whoever my actor is goes in, records, and then I score accordingly. And I split things up after we have a finished acting product. We discuss... Things, but Chris is welcome to talk about his acting methods. I don't know how you determine these things. Like I tell you what how I want them to go, but I don't know how you determine how you you want to act.
2: I kind of adapt the way I'm acting based on the piece. So a lot, quite a few of the ones that Nicole and I decided on that I went on recorded, they actually have a surprisingly dark tone. So for example, the Cask of Amontola, Amontillado, and I think I might have mispronounced that quite a few times.
3: Amontillado, yeah, I know. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry.
2: But yeah, so for that, uh, uh, going in, I hadn't actually read that story before. Uh, and as I was reading through it, as like a quick pass through, I thought, actually, this is quite dark. So you wouldn't want to be going in saying, <laughs> oh, and so suddenly they all went for a drink and then they're dead. <laughs> it felt like a more a more serious, more dramatic tone was required. And actually, that, that's been a bit of a, a running almost like a running theme through.
3: Yeah, and if I can explain the reason for that, it's because I wanted not only my actors, but myself. We're all sick and tired of being typecast as being like these peppy animation people. You know, in Mr. Goonies' Chickens, I did my best, but I can't exactly throw in a a challenging score there because it's about a nice lady raising chickens on her farm. You know, I can't have anything like the stuff that you, you score to people out for murder or revenge. You know, that's the fun stuff. It's not that... Other things aren't fun, but I felt like I was limited and then people only saw me as being that. So um, thanks to these radio plays, not only do I help get people work, but then people can see us having a range beyond simple animation. And that goes for myself, too. It's so easy being typecast.
1: It is interesting, too, how much of a stigma there apparently still is around animation. because, And I didn't watch the Oscars. Uh, I I refused to watch this year because of all the issues. But one of the things that I saw was how openly they were condescending towards animation, saying that yeah. it's just for kids and that all the adults only watch it because their kids watch it. Meanwhile, one of yeah. the nominees was Flee, which was a dramatized documentary about a gay man fleeing Afghanistan. And it's like, one, like, how are you that tone deaf? But also, how are you keeping such a utterly antiquated view of animation and still perpetuating it?
2: That, that's it. It's entirely rooted in the past. And I hope, beyond hope, that People will will start seeing that even at the moment on places like Netflix, um, you've got animations which are really quite, quite very much for adults.
3: Death and robots, which everyone at yes, um, Legacy Effects was obsessed with. Yes. Love that. Everyone at, in the special effects industry loved, I mean, for people who don't animate, loved Death and Robots. Myself included, by the way, even though I'm not technically a special effects person
1: yeah i had, i had i don't think I finished that anthology when it came out, but I'd watched most of it and it is i mean it's also very cool to watch because it's you know a bunch of five ten minute pieces that are all so distinct in story and style that it's like such a great way to show off like look at all these things that animation can do
3: and also if I may remind people c g i is animation, and you know I think that people perceive it as not. When, in fact, you could argue many of these films are animated films that come out. I mean, like a Blockbusters, they're all animated movies. You know, the only things that are not are things that are using real backdrops, and those are very hard to come by.
1: Yeah, I mean, you look at a lot of the behind-the-scenes images of, pick a random superhero movie, like, that's the case. There's an actor standing in front of a green screen, and everything else is animated. It does look like the time is slowly running out on us, but before we do wrap up, you know, I know that Both of you are, as we've talked about, creating a lot of things. What are some of the things on the near horizon to look out for, to watch, or to listen to?
3: Well, Chris is acting in lots and lots of my work. So, I mean, like, Pandemic Breakdown is the live-action short film that we're kind of in the process of making. Chris has filmed his end, though, and it's total satire. Um, uh, I'm hopefully going to use U-Jam to score it because I I think it has such a diverse mix of scoring. Like, I want to have a waltz with you know like synth stuff and who knows whatever it's about um a guy in england and chris is one of his friends in the movie gets revenge on his billionaire boss who lives in southern california who has just fired him over basically zoom or a phone call a total jerk of a boss who's so out of touch and he gets revenge by killing his boss by hiring out the services to the long island mafia and i'm basing my character on the long island medium <laughs> like for the sense of, of this film i just thought she would be a, a very good inspiration although i'm not getting the nails
1: <laughs> yeah and, and chris does that about some of that at least the big stuff on the horizon for you
2: yeah pretty much looking uh, in fact just the small small anecdote around the uh, pandemic breakdown uh it was quite funny how my scene worked out because uh nicole had an idea it was like here's a brief sentence as an idea of what I want your character to say go nuts <laughs> so yeah I, I think I think I, what was it like four or five different takes of me just saying random yeah, well, rubbish they can
3: find them. and then I put an old film effect on it which is fun and you know that's kind of how it is like I have a bunch of ideas co- that are mine and then co-written some are like with Ryan McGregor and some are with Kieran Goodwin and you know like all, all this mix of things
1: but yeah. Once again, Nicole Chris, thanks for joining me. It was fun chatting with both of you, and yeah, I'm looking for forward to uh, to what's coming out in the future for the two of you.
2: Thank you very much. It's uh, it's been yes, it's been fun. You.
1: Good, very good, and I'm I'm glad we didn't neglect you too much
3: and also my cat joined us as a guest so whoever thinks like what who is that in the bag it's a cat this whole time it's a cat and at one point like I don't mind if people know this on the podcast while I was talking to you all of you I had to rescue my cat from climbing up really high in a dresser, holding my laptop and a microphone so that was really fun yeah
1: well you know d- despite all that all the drama I think it turned out all right